This morning we begin a new section in the ministry of Jesus as found in the words in Matthew 19.1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so there is a completion of that particular section and now Jesus is beginning his movement towards Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 1 that he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Although we have concluded that particular portion of Jesus' ministry, there is a continuation of theme in the book of Matthew. As these sections uh, are arranged not only in chronological order, but also in a thematic arrangement. We find in verse 2 that large crowds had followed him and he healed them there. However, the focus is not on the crowds and the focus is not on the healings. Rather, the focus is on a question that the Pharisees have put to Jesus. And it is this question that links us to the previous section that we looked at last week concerning forgiveness. Forgiveness. And how often must we forgive one that has sinned against us? And we discovered that that was as many times as they come and seek our forgiveness. As many times as they repent. That forms a bridge to the discussion that is going to take place now concerning marriage. Marriage. The Pharisees raise a question of Jesus in verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's important to realize that when the Pharisees raised this question, they were not raising it out of a sincere desire to know the truth. Nor were they raising the question out of a desire to be subservient to the truth. They raised the question in order to test Jesus. Test him in the sense to undermine his ministry in some way. The test would include such things as, would Jesus contradict the teaching of Moses? Would Jesus risk the alienation of his followers by addressing a divisive issue. This was a very divisive issue in its day, even as it's a divisive issue in our day. Would Jesus run the risk of offending prominent Roman leaders as John the Baptist lost his head because of his particular stand concerning marriage and divorce? There are still many controversies and differences of opinion regarding marriage even to this day. It is a hot topic, but we should not avoid it simply because it is a hot topic or controversial. Jesus is going to address the issue, and so must we. But the difference ought to be for sure that we are interested in discovering what the truth of God's word is and how we can live in a subservient fashion to it as opposed to simply want to raise controversy and argument. The controversy swirled around the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. 24, verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand. There were two prominent rabbis in Jesus' day that had quite divergent teachings regarding 
marriage and divorce. The school of Shammai interpreted Deuteronomy 24 as indicating that a man could divorce his wife for the cause of unfaithfulness only. That that was the only ground for divorce or the only reason for divorce is if there was sexual infidelity. The school of Hillel understood the passage to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any cause, even, and uh, I quote, burning his bread. Okay, so if his wife burned his bread, that would be an indecent thing for her to do, and she could, uh, and he could divorce her. Uh, in practice, it was, you know, ex- extremely uh, liberal, if you will. So the question was, could a man divorce his wife for any cause, or was it limited to uh, adultery? Jesus uses the occasion to teach on the sanctity of marriage. He's going to answer the question, but he's going to use it as an opportunity to teach about the sanctity of marriage. So we begin by noticing first that Jesus refocuses the question by establishing God's role in marriage. And notice how he does this. First, Jesus teaches that God's word must be considered when answering questions concerning marriage. Verse 4, he answered... Have you not read? Okay. Haven't you considered the scriptures? Haven't you given full thought to what the Old Testament teaches regarding the issue of marriage? Whenever we discuss marriage, we've got to begin with the scriptures. As opposed to various schools of thought, various positions or cultural norms or ideas, we must ask, what does the Bible say? Jesus then goes on to note that marriage is established as a result of God's creative act. Matthew 19.4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage is a result of the creational work of God. Next, marriage is between a man and a woman. Matthew 19, verse 4. He created them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife. So marriage is between a man and a woman, a male and a female, and they are to leave father and mother and cleave to one another. And it's very interesting that this indeed is a verse about marriage. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2, and in the context, it's said about Adam and Eve, who of course have no father and mother. But it is, in fact, the establishment of marriage when God brought Adam and Eve together. Which is the next point. God brings a man together, a man and woman together in marriage. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. So God has brought two people together. He has brought them together in a union. And this union is described as one flesh. One flesh is a 
pregnant word, if you will, in the Old Testament, it has three connotations to it. One flesh has the uh, context of duty, responsibility. One flesh has the uh, connotation of companionship and of mutual uh, concerns and goals, etc., etc. And then one flesh certainly has a sexual content to it where the two are become physically one or united. Jesus then says, what God brings together, man should not seek to undo. Verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus teaches that marriage should not be annulled, marriage should not be uh, dissolved, marriage should not end in result, people are not to separate. Jesus teaches, therefore, that it's God's intention that marriage be a lasting institution. The Pharisees then pose a follow-up question. That is, if God wants marriage to be permanent, why did Moses command people to divorce? Verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If marriage is to be permanent, if marriage is to be non-dissolved, then why did Moses command that people divorce? Now Jesus addresses the follow-up question. The question of the Pharisees was a loaded question, and it was an inaccurate question. Now, how a question is raised really determines many times the, the response that is given. That's certainly found out with surveys. How you raise the question governs the way in which people respond. Jesus doesn't fall for their trick. Okay, uh, Jesus points out that Moses did not command people to divorce. Notice verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses, now notice this word, allowed you to divorce your wives. He allowed you to divorce their wives. There is no situation. Let me say this again. There is no situation in which the Bible teaches that a husband must divorce his wife. There is no situation in which people are obligated to be divorced. It is always appropriate to stay together, no matter what the situation. He goes on to say that the reason that God allowed divorce was due to the unrepentant nature of mankind. Notice verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Hardness of heart, synonyms, cold, obstinate, stubborn, or unforgiving. Unforgiving. The reason that God has allowed divorce is because people are unforgiving. This is the bridge. Last week, we saw that you ought to forgive as often as someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness. Now they come to test Jesus and said, can we divorce for any cause? Jesus says, 
you shouldn't divorce ever. They said, but what about this command to divorce? Jesus said, no, 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 it's not a command. It's an allowance. And the reason for the allowance is because people have a tendency to be unforgiving. Because people have a tendency to be harsh, cruel, irreconcilable. Therefore, God permits divorce. The emphasis, actually, is on the giving of the certificate. It was a means of protecting this unloved wife from the cruelness and the hardship and the meanness of her husband. However, Jesus again points out that this goes against what was God's intention for marriage. Notice verse 8, last statement. But from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was not so. God created man and woman. God brought them together. It was God's intention that they would be together forever. But then we had the fall. Then we had man and woman entering into sin. And as a result, hardness of heart. As a result, bitterness. As a result, there was all kinds of trials and difficulties and hardship because of sin. Sin is the reason that divorce is necessitated. Because of the hardness of people's heart. But Jesus says that that was not the way it was in the beginning. With all of that groundwork, Jesus then recognizes a single ground for divorce. Verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he comes down on the one side. There were two sides. Could you divorce for any cause whatsoever? Or could you divorce for the cause of sexual immorality? Jesus comes down on the side, you can divorce for the cause of sexual immorality. That's how you understand Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Now, I could unpack all of that uh, to a greater extent, but rather, this morning, I want to move on. Because what happens next is very interesting. For we move from the Pharisees asking a insincere question to a very sincere response on the part of the disciples. The text doesn't tell us what the Pharisees' response was to that. What what the initial reaction was. The text moves on to a response that the disciples had. It wasn't an immediate response. We find out in a parallel passage that they entered a house and then they have this, this talk. But notice the disciples' response. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Okay? So the disciples said, Wow. If marriage is so important, And if marriage is to be lasting, 
that you should stay together no matter what, then it would be better not to marry. It'd be better not to be put in a place where you're going to be tempted to divorce, where you are going to have to constantly forgive and and so on. Better off to be single than to be married, was the disciples' response. Such is the case of a man of his woman, it's better not to marry. I find that kind of interesting because in our society, people are arriving at a similar conclusion but for far different reasons. Namely, that it, that it is better not to marry. And I want to unpack that for a moment. Better not to marry. But they are coming, as I say, to that conclusion from a far different starting place, and the application is far different from what this text application is going to be. It is very common for people to think that it is better to live together rather than to get married or at least to live together first and then eventually get married. Better to see if you are right for each other before you go to the permanent route of marriage. This is seen as a way of preventing divorce. This has a strange view that says, you know, marriage is really, really important. So before we enter into marriage, we really ought to live together to see if we are right. You'll, you, you'll read such things as you wouldn't even buy a car without driving it first. Therefore, you don't want to get married before you live together. I'm going to have a few statistics, a, a few sources that I am going to cite. Jeffrey H. Larson, a PhD, he wrote a book entitled Should We Stay Together? A Scientifically Proven Method for Evaluating Your Relationship and Improving Its Chances for Long-Term Success. I quote from this book. The majority of all U.S. marriages today involve cohabitation before the wedding. Between 1974 and 1994, the percentage of marriages preceded by cohabitation increased. So in 1974, it was 10% of people living together before they were married. Today, uh, as of 1994, 56% of people live together before they are married. In the mid-1990s, almost 60% of high school seniors agreed with the statement it is usually a good idea for a couple to live together before getting married in order to find out whether they really get along. That's the mid-1990s. The majority of high school students agreed with that statement. Quoting again, despite those commonly held beliefs, the idea that cohabitation will somehow improve the quality of a subsequent marriage is wrong. Research over the last 30 years shows that cohabitation does not lead to increased satisfaction or stability in marriage, end quote. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, which is part of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 40% of people living together go on to marry within the first three years. So 
40% of people that live together actually end up getting married within the first three years. So it sounds like, well, that works. You know, rather than divorce, better to find out that we're not compatible, and so only 40% get married. That's victory, okay? Well, no. According to Demographic Research, Volume 8, Article 8, the topography of the divorce plateau says this, and I quote, First-time marriages of couples that had cohabitated before marriage were almost twice as likely to end in divorce as compared to first-time marriages of couples who had not cohabitated before divorce. Excuse me, before marriage. So let me run these statistics by again. So what it is saying is 40% marry. But out of that 40%, they are twice as likely to get divorced than people who have not lived together before they were married. Twice as likely. Why would people who live together be almost twice as likely to divorce as opposed to people who did not live together before they were married? Our government has paid for research on that question. Research was funded by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, grant number R01HD19342. And that research posited two answers. I quote, Recent evidence linking premarital cohabitation to high rates of divorce poses a complex theoretical and empirical puzzle. We developed hypotheses predicting that premarital cohabitation is selective of those who are prone to divorce, as well as hypothesizes predicting that the experience of premarital cohabitation produces attitudes and values which increase the probability of divorce, end quote. In other words, they came up with two suggestions and then they proved it. The first was that if people live together, by its very fact, that says they are more prone to divorce because they don't value marriage as much. If they're willing to live together first, then they have a lower view of marriage. And then secondly, they came to this conclusion, and that is the experience of premarital cohabitation produces attitudes and values which increase the probability of divorce. In other words, just the idea of living together with the idea that if this doesn't work out, we can just move out is far different than starting a relationship that says, we're in this for life. We better resolve our issues. We better solve our differences. We better learn how to get along because if we don't, we're going to just be living miserable. And rather than live miserable the rest of our lives, we ought to try to live happily. But the person who's in a relationship that says, ah, if this doesn't pan out, if I don't like it, I'm just going to move out. When they move into a marriage, they have the same attitude. If this doesn't work out, we'll just divorce, is what this particular study is saying. Jesus teaches that sexual sexual abstinence is the only alternative to marriage. Jesus' response to the idea that it is better not to marry is not that everyone is able to live a life of sexual abstinence. Notice Matthew 19.11. 
But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. Not everybody can live single. Not everyone abstains from sexual activity. So Jesus then goes on to talk about three reasons why people abstain from sexual activity. Matthew 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs. A eunuch is a person who does not engage in sexual activity. So, there are people who do not engage in sexual activity for three reasons. First, there are those who are eunuchs who have been so from birth. In other words, there is something that causes them to refrain from sexual activity that has to do with the way that they were born. Okay? Perhaps they uh, cannot sexually function. Okay? They, have, they have limitations. Uh, maybe they've had a disease or whatever the case may be, but the point is they are incapable of having a sexual relationship. That's one group of people. That would obviously be a small percentage, but there are people who cannot or do not want to have a sexual relationship. Secondly, some people in that day and age were castrated by their masters, especially those in the courts of kings, so that the servants would not be having a sexual relationship with the king's harem. It's found in verse 12. And there are eunuchs who have made, been made eunuchs by men. All right? So they've actually been castrated so that they cannot have a physical relationship. In our day and age, that's pretty uncommon. Uh, we don't find uh, castration, uh, thankfully, in uh, the way in which it was practiced in the Old Testament days. But nonetheless, that's the second reason. And here's the third reason. Matthew 19, verse 12. There are those who have made themselves, uh, uh, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are people that choose to not engage in sexual activity. There are people that choose to abstain because of their relationship to the kingdom for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus then goes on to say, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus leaves people with two choices. And they are the only choices. And that is for a man and woman to marry, or for people to remain uh, abstinent from sexual activity. Those are the choices. Either marry or abstain from sexual activity. Why would anyone refrain from sexual activity? One, because they're incapable of having sex. Two, because they have become incapable of having sex. Or three, for the sake of the kingdom. 
for the sake of the kingdom. I find that striking. We should not be surprised by so many people who are engaging in sexual activity out of the confines of marriage because that's how non-believers are going to live. They are not looking for the kingdom's sake. They are not living by the same standards. They are not conducting themselves in the same way. And you can read all the statistics you want till you're blue in the face, but they're not going to adopt a lifestyle that is like one who is living their life for the kingdom. So put it in perspective. You know? Just recognize we should not be surprised that the majority of people are living together or that the divorce is common. Okay? And you know, we can talk all we want about our society and our culture, but Jesus is addressing very real issues of his day. Remember the woman at the well? He talked about going to her husband. She said, I have had four husbands, and the man that I now live with is not my husband. He said, you have spoken correctly. So here's a woman, she's had four husbands, and now she's living with somebody. That's in Jesus' day. The same has happened since the fall. Since the fall. So I say to our young people, I say to our middle-aged people, I say to our elderly people, I say to us all, why should we remain, why should we refrain from sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage? As I say, I could read you statistics galore about you know, happiness, I could talk about venereal diseases, I could talk about children and the effect upon them, I could talk about so many, many things. But this morning, I'm limiting myself to this text that says, for the kingdom's sake. For the kingdom's sake. For reason of your testimony. For bringing honor and glory to God. Because you want to further the gospel message because you want to live your life in a manner that depicts a difference from the world and those around you, okay? The ultimate reason, the ultimate reason is because you're a Christian. And to be a Christian means you live your life differently from those that aren't. With that in mind, let's move on to the application. How is a person to abstain from sexual activity? First, with the Lord's help. Matthew 19, verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is is given. Okay? And uh, so... That means that the Lord can enable us to abstain from sexual activity. We should pray and ask God to help us. 
We need to learn to control our desires. That's true not only with, as people before they're married, that's even in marriage, there are times in which you know, ladies become pregnant. There are issues of times in which you cannot have a sexual relationship with your, your, your spouse. There are times of impotency. There are times of disease. There's all kinds of things that happen in which even in a marital situation, you've got to practice abstinence. Ask for God's help. Ask for God's control. I don't want to be overly simplistic this morning, but I want to make one last application because I think it's so very vital in our society. And that is the most notable uh, instruction about overcoming sexual activity is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9. And it says this, but if they, that is people, cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay. One of the biggest reasons that people are uh, engaging in sexual activity today is because people are putting off marriage later and later and later and later. I believe that that is a cultural norm that we really ought to look at hard and fast. Okay. Um, Why are people putting off marriage? Why are people waiting to get married later in life? I'm not pushing irresponsibility this morning, but I am saying that we ought to regard marriage as sacred and guarded at all costs. And there are things that we put before marriage that aren't important, such as having an elaborate wedding, people putting off marriage in order to have this elaborate wedding. We can't afford it now, we can't do it now, so let's just move in, and then when we can't afford it and so on, then let's get married, okay? Uh, The ceremony is becoming bigger than marriage itself. Number two, finances. People are waiting to get married in order to be able to afford things or to buy a house or do all these things. And here's my biggest challenge this morning. If two people are ready to live together, then those two people ought to be ready to be married. It doesn't cost any more money to live together with a marriage license than it does to live together without one. It doesn't make obtaining a college education any easier to do it without a marriage license than to do it with a marriage license. There is just no reason. I'm going to say it that absolute. There is no reason for two people to live together before they're married. If you're ready to move in, you're ready to marry. 
and you should. Conclusion. First, we should not be surprised in the way that those who do not know Christ decide to live their lives. They are not able to receive this or accept this teaching because their lives are not dedicated to living for the kingdom. However, those who do know Christ, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. We should follow the teaching of Jesus. People who know Christ should honor God by honoring marriage. And that means at least four things, if not more. First, that means we understand that marriage is between a man and a woman. That means we should practice abstinence from sex outside of marriage. That means we should marry as opposed to living together. And that means that when we are married, that we should practice forgiveness rather than getting divorced. May God help us to live by these biblical standards and try to bring honor and glory to him as we seek to obey his teaching. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you, and first of all, Lord, you have taught us so much about forgiveness. And there are many who have not lived up to these situations, these standards. And Lord, there are, we all fall short in different ways and in different things. I pray, oh Lord, that if this has touched somebody's nerve this morning, that they would simply ask for forgiveness and seek that forgiveness from you. If they are in situations of which they can repent, if they are in situations that can be changed, I pray that you would grant them that boldness to change. I pray that if there are people living together, they'll decide to get married. I pray that if they, or that they will separate and practice abstinence. I pray that, Lord, that if there are, are people that, that grieve over a divorce or what have you, that they would seek to reconcile, or if that's not possible any longer, Lord, just confess it and, and move on. Uh, And uh, we thank you, Lord, that there is remarriage by your word for those that have been involved in in such situations. Lord, uh, we want to honor and glorify you. We want to be different people as a result of your kingdom. Help us not to be molded by our society, by our culture, by our peers, by those around us for This is just one area that we talk of so many in which the ideals of the scripture are so foreign to that of our friends, our acquaintances, our society, our culture. They don't get it. They don't understand. They don't reinforce it. But, oh, Lord, help us to move beyond all of that and focus our heart and our mind on doing that which is pleasing to you which furthers your work, which honors your name, and to recognize, O God, that to be a part of your kingdom is to be blessed. And all that you have given to us in your word is for our betterment, for our well-being, and for your glory. Help us to believe that, and help us to adopt a, a way of life 
that is consistent with your word. For it's in Jesus we pray. Amen.